Welcome to the Living by Faith podcast. My name is Josh DeGroat, and this is episode number 17. Thanks for listening. This is a podcast where I take a look at some news items, theology, and history, all from the perspective of the Christian's life of faith in Christ. Let's jump in. Pro-life evangelicals for Biden? An article was circulating a couple of weeks ago written by a couple of self-professed evangelicals saying that they and others are pro-life and are voting for Joe Biden. And their argument is that though they disagree with Biden on the issue of abortion, they have what they call a more holistic view of what it means to be pro-life. Now, first of all, why is this even a big story? I think it has to do with the Democratic position on abortion. This wouldn't have been a big story 50 years ago or or even probably 30 years ago. But of course, the reason that this is a story is because the Democratic Party has gone from publicly stating that they want abortion to be safe, legal, and rare uh, to unrestricted access to abortion at any time for any reason or no reason at all. So in the article, the authors cite things like poverty, healthcare, racism, and global warming, and say these are all pro-life issues as well. Of course, these are worthy societal and policy discussions, but are they really pro-life issues? I mean, is this historically what the pro-life issue has revolved around? Well, of course, no, it's not true. The goalposts have been changed. Let's not talk about abortion anymore. Let's just say that virtually every major policy difference between Republicans and Democrats and hot-button cultural issues Uh, are pro-life issues, and let's see if that sticks. But let's even just think for a moment about uh, about some of these items. Poverty. We're we're told poverty is a pro-life issue. Of course poverty matters. No one wants wants to live in poverty, and no one wants other people to, no reasonable person, no good person, no, no Christian person wants others to live in poverty as well. But what we're being told is that What's needed is more government assistance, more government programs, more welfare is needed to be holistically pro-life. No country on earth has done more to eradicate its uh, poverty from its own people and from other peoples on the globe. The the issue is, is that something that government ought to get involved in? Is is it something that government ought to institute, institute policies in order to uh, hopefully eradicate poverty. Well, we've tried that in this country, but we've been doing it for over 50 years now. The quote-unquote war on poverty has spent tens of trillions of dollars since 1964 when the Great Society policies were put in place by then-President Lyndon Baines Johnson. And what it's done is it's created more dependency, it's created a lack of self-sufficiency, and it's had massively destructive effects on the nuclear family. And it's done this disproportionately in the black community. It's devastated the black community, even more than whites and Hispanics and others. Obviously, there are examples of individuals who got a hand out, or excuse me, a hand up and made something of their lives. But by and large, the war on poverty has created more problems. What about global warming? The article says that if we don't do anything, millions of people are going to die because of global warming. Now, on this issue, if you've listened to the public discourse much at all, we hear all the time that you have to follow what the scientists are saying. But it begs the question, doesn't it? Which scientists are we to listen to? Are we to listen to the scientists that are saying the the sky is falling, the sky is falling? 
What about the scientists who are blackballed because they refute global warming? Or at least say that it's not the existential threat that we're being told it is. Furthermore, just, just an, another question about global warming. How on earth would our country, that is up to our eyeballs in debt, pay for the trillions of dollars of legislation being proposed by the Democratic Party to take care of global warming? Even if Joe Biden, who says he's not with uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal policy or program, uh, even if he's not with that, which, which her program costs like tens of trillions of dollars, it's just insanely expensive. Even if Biden's not on board with that, on his own website, he says that her program, the Green New Deal, does provide a framework for what he wants to do to fight global warming. So my guess is even his program is going to cost in the trillions of dollars. How do we pay for that? How is this a pro-life issue? What about racism? Racism is a pro-life issue. And of course, who would argue with that? Racism has devastated people's lives in the past and in the present. But to me, it seems like the argument is aimed at the president and that he's a racist and that racism and the, the issue of racial tensions would be lessened if Joe Biden was president. But does anyone really believe that? I don't believe that. In fact, I, I would suggest that racial tensions will be inflamed even more if Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are, are president and vice president. So is this what it really means to be pro-life, to, to, to get on the bandwagon of being a global warming alarmist, to be advocating for more government programs, more welfare? To me, it seems like this is just an attempt at trying to change the definition of pro-life so that when it's all said and done, we are left with the message that the party that openly advocates for the dismembering of babies in the womb without restriction and paid for by the taxpayer, paid for by you, the taxpayer, is actually the pro-life party now. That is incredibly ironic. But let's face it, this comes down to a worldview issue, how we view the world. And as Christians, we need to be assured that God has spoken in the scriptures and that he has spoken with crystal clarity. So let's speak with some clarity about what God says. In his law, God says, you shall not murder. And let's face it, one of the major political parties in our country has lurched so far to the left that they say that the gruesome dismembering of babies in their mother's womb must not be impeded for any reason. The most important thing is that a woman has the right to autonomously choose to end the life of her baby. But it goes further than that. We are told this is a fundamental right that women have. It is a positive good. Fundamental rights are positive goods, right? Our, our Declaration of Independence says that we are granted as image bearers of God certain unalienable rights. Among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is a fundamental right, we are told, by the left of women to end the life of their babies via abortion. Christians believe that God has spoken with clarity and that he has said in Proverbs 6, I hate the hands that shed innocent blood. Christians believe that the life of every human being begins at conception and that each and every human being is created by God in the image of God and therefore has intrinsic dignity and value. And so abortion is not only the killing of a person, it is an assault on the image of God. 
which is why the scriptures say murder is a capital crime. In Genesis 9-6, which is as part of the, the covenant given to Noah, God says to Noah, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, because God made man in his own image. Christians, we desperately need clarity on this issue. We need clarity on what it means to be pro-life. The next section is what I call the catechesis section. For centuries, Christians gave them to the practice of learning the doctrines of the Christian faith by way of a catechism. Catechesis simply means to teach orally or to instruct by word of mouth. And so typically a catechism was, was consisted of questions and answers with scripture to teach the basics of the Christian faith. So what I'm doing is I'm making my way through a modern catechism that takes from some old ones, some old ancient ones, good tried and true ancient catechisms, um, and uh, puts it in more modern language. It's called the New City Catechism. There's 52 questions and answers with scripture, and so I'm taking one a week. So this week, we are taking a look at question and answer 17. Question 17 is this, what is idolatry? The answer, idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness our significance and security. In the West, when we think of idolatry, we often think of a native tribesman in some jungle somewhere in South America or Africa bowing down to a wooden statue and worshiping. Now, of course, that is idolatry, but idolatry is something that happens in the heart and works its way out, which is why John Calvin once wrote that man's heart is a perpetual idol factory. Now, when, when, when uh, Calvin said this, he was communicating two profound truths. First, that we are created to worship, and so we will worship. We'll worship something or someone. And second, until one is born again, he or she will always worship something imagined in the heart and created by man rather than worship the uncreated God. In other words, we'll always worship something created rather than our creator. The essence of idolatry is trusting in, paying homage to, serving created things in order to get our meaning in life and give us security, rather than trusting in, paying homage to, and serving God. Now, God alone is, is, is meant to occupy that space of trust because God alone can give us the hope, happiness, and security we truly long for. And he does give us this. He gives us all of it in and through Jesus Christ. The scripture that goes with question and answer 17 is out of Romans chapter 1, verses 21 and 25. Here's what it says. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So we see there, we see right there, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's the essence of idolatry, is serving and worshiping the creature, created things, rather than the creator, our creator God, who deserves our worship. In the history section, I wanna talk about a fascinating story about an amazing woman. One of the great sagas in the Bible is the story of Joseph. Joseph, as a young boy, was sold into slavery by his brothers. He spent several years as a slave or in jail in Egypt before he finally was brought to prominence in Pharaoh's government. Obviously, he was, if you know the story, he was made second in charge in all of Egypt. 
And uh, Joseph eventually saw why God had allowed all that happened to him and even said to his brothers after being reunited with them many, many years after they sold him into slavery, he said this in Genesis 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Well, I want to tell you the story about a woman named Phyllis Wheatley, an African slave who became a genius poet and Christian in early colonial America. Phyllis was kidnapped at the age of seven from West Africa and brought to America where she was purchased by the Wheatley family of Boston. Though most slaves were not taught to read or write in English and even discouraged from learning, Phyllis was taught the English alphabet by the Wheatley daughter. She was also given religious and theological training. Though their slave, the Wheatley family really did come to love Phyllis, and Phyllis came to love them as well, especially Mrs. Wheatley. Well, it didn't take long to discover that Phyllis was a genius. After only one and a half years of being in America, Phyllis was fluent in English. She came here not knowing a lick of English, and she was studying Latin, geography, astronomy, literature, and history. By the age of 10, Phyllis was reading Greek and Latin. Remember, three years after being here, not knowing any English, she's reading Greek and Latin. She was actually translating the classics from Greek and Latin into English. She wrote poems, and amazingly, at just the age of 14, had one of her poems published in a newspaper. In fact, Phyllis was the first African woman to have something published in America at the age of 14. She was converted to Christ at the age of 16 and was a committed Christian who studied theology and wrote about subjects as wide-ranging as the image of God, the depravity of man, the redeeming work of Christ, God's natural, uh, natural law and um, his, his natural revelation that we see in creation. She wrote about all of these things. After negotiating her freedom, Phyllis continued to write, but she wrote to challenge uh, those in favor of slavery and even the pro-slavery inconsistencies of some Christians at that time. One notable Christian that maybe you've heard of before is George Whitfield. He was the famed evangelist that came to America from England and sparked revival everywhere. But George Whitfield was inconsistent on the issue of slavery. Though Phyllis Wheatley had many kind things to say and wrote um, about George Whitfield after he died, while he was alive, she challenged him on these inconsistencies. Finally, having been saved by the blood of Jesus, Phyllis was passionate about spreading the gospel, and she was engaged in mission work. She helped to fund missions to Ghana and Sierra Leone. Truly, Phyllis Wheatley is a Christian hero. She belongs among the Hebrews 11 crowd, those who by faith did wondrous things for the glory of God. And yet, much of it came about through the horrors of the slave trade. The institution of slavery was abhorrent. And let's face it, some of the history in this nation is reprehensible. Slavery, whether motivated by pragmatism, just needing, just wanting to own people as property to do work for you, or based on overt racism. Regardless, it is evil, and the scripture clearly condemns it. The buying and selling of human beings is an abomination to God. However, one thing this story shows us is that God is able, God is able to bring good and beauty out of the evil intentions and choices of men. As Martin Luther once said, God is able to draw a straight line with crooked sticks. 
in the worst of situations, God is working out his purposes. He always is. God intended good through the evil of men and the evil of slavery. And we see that in the story of Phyllis Wheatley. First and foremost, she became a Christian, right? She, she, not only that, but she was able to bless others with her writing and, and, and was used to spread the gospel to peoples who needed to hear the good news of Jesus in Africa. Truly, in the case of Phyllis Wheatley, what men meant for evil, God meant for good. Thanks again for listening to the Living by Faith podcast. If you found it helpful, please subscribe, like, and share. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all.